please turn to 1 Samuel 26. Eight to ten-year-olds are dismissed to your class if you'd like to go to that. 1 Samuel 26 is our text for the morning. Uh, just a word about Jason's announcement about the um, leadership discussions. Uh, a week from this coming Tuesday, I will be teaching um, a class on how to study your Bible. You can get a lot of books on how to study your Bible that are all wonderful and fantastic, and I've personally benefited from them. But I, I wanted to kind of amass a number of resources and give you just some of my thoughts on really getting the most out of studying your Bible. The reason we want to know what's in Scripture is because we want to know the God who revealed Scripture. We're, we're aiming at knowing God, not just facts, not just Bible trivia. We're aiming to know God, and, um, you know, it, it, in every single counseling situation, every single advice, piece of advice I give to a friend or a family member, whatever it may be, it starts with meditate on the Word. Know your God. It changes everything. So, I just want to speak kind of from the heart and get some resources to you and just help you to better maybe approach Bible study and therefore approach knowing God better. So, again, week from Tuesday, just wanted to give you that little preview. Uh, 1 Samuel 26, David, uh, two chapters ago, showed mercy to Saul when he could have killed him. But David said, I can't kill the Lord's anointed. That would be wrong. I'm not going to kill the Lord's anointed. I'll wait for the throne, and I'll wait for God's timing to have the throne. And then David, in the next chapter, is ready to kill someone who offends him, showing us that David isn't the perfect man. He's a godly man, but even David needs to be rescued from his own temptations, and God uses Abigail, the, the wife of the man whom David wanted to kill, and God ends up actually bringing justice to that man, Nabal, for his sin against David. And here again, chapter 26, we've got another instance of David showing mercy to Saul. And these are two different instances. And there's a reason that they're both there. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But let's look at 1 Samuel 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hekelah? which is on the east of Jeshimon. So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hekelah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped, and David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment, while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner, the army, I'm sorry, at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, 
For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake. For they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. That David went over to the other side and stood far off on top of the hill, with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. I've entitled this passage, Sinned Against Again. If you want a theological theme for the sermon this morning, it would be when the enemies of God, unbelievers, those who reject Christ, when the enemies of God attack you. When the enemies of God are at odds with you, belittle you, persecute you, mistreat you, gossip about you, whatever it may be. That's really the theological theme of this passage. I don't know if you've ever been ridiculed by someone who opposes God or persecuted or made fun of or been distanced from. Some of you have that in your own families. Some of you have that in your schools friendships that you once had. This is a reality of what it means to follow Christ. When you follow Christ, not everyone loves you for it. And we see here David, the one 
whom the Spirit of God is upon, continually being threatened, chased down by Saul, the one in whom the Spirit of God was removed. And so there's this really good versus evil battle, and you see as Saul chases down David, the evil pursuing the good, but it's interesting to note what the good person does, the righteous person in this regard, David, what he does in the face of being attacked, persecuted. And that's really what we see in this passage, how David handles a repeated offense by Saul. This isn't the first time. David's been in the wilderness and at different locations, some of which are foreign territory. We'll talk about that later. David's been on the run for quite a while, months if not years. But he still does the right thing with Saul. He still refuses to sin against Saul. He still trusts in the Lord. And so this passage gives us three examples of godliness when repeatedly sinned against. Three examples of godliness when repeatedly sinned against. Now, I want to note, this doesn't mean that David's always perfect. We saw that last week, right? David's not the perfect person in responding to evil, but he is a good example for us. There is a perfect person that responded to evil righteously, Jesus Christ. And David shows us a glimpse of the character of Christ here in this passage, 1 Samuel chapter 26. So I think while we go through this, there's going to be, there could be the temptation to think that um, when I'm repeatedly mistreated, this is what I need to do to be like David. And there could be this temptation to think that whenever we're mistreated, whenever we're at odds with someone else, we're always right. We're always in every way the innocent party. They're always in every way the guilty party. It's interesting that every conflict I've ever been in, I've always been right. Just, I, I say that with sarcasm just so we know that there was a chapter 25 before the chapter 26. Okay, David's not always right. But here, if you just look at who's at fault, we're not, we're not talking perfect righteousness here. We're talking about who's at fault, Saul's at fault, and how does David respond to that in a godly way? All right, so three examples of godliness when repeatedly sinned against. Here's the first example. Trust in God's justice. David trusts in God's justice. That's a great example for us. We talked about this again a couple weeks ago. David trusts God's future judgment to God. He doesn't take it upon himself to bring about justice right then and there. He trusts in God's justice. Now, I read verses 1 through 5. Those are kind of the setting, the lead up to the passage. And so we're going to look at David trusting in God's justice from verses 6 through 16. All right. So again, 1 through 5, David's on the run. He's told, uh, Saul's told by the Ziphites, those crazy Ziphites who've told Saul again repeatedly before that David was hiding and where he's hiding, they tell him again where David is. They know David's kind of main area that he would be during this time period. So they tell Saul, they tell him what, what uh, hill David's on. Saul brings his famous 3,000 men, and he's going after David again. Now we see David trust in God's justice. Pick up in verse 6. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? 
So there are two men there. Remember, David's got 600 men, but he asks two in particular, hey, I'm going to go to Saul's camp. Who's going to come with me? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. Now, I believe Abishai thought, I'll go down with you. We'll take care of him. We'll kill him. Because when they get there, Abishai says, here he is. God's given him into your hand. So I don't think Abishai is going with the right motives. We don't hear why David's going. We learn about that in a little bit. But David asks two men. One says, I'll go down with you. Verse 7. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. So David goes and he sees the encampment of Saul's men. 3,000. Don't know how exactly they were scattered, but we know that in the middle of them was Saul and his main bodyguard, Abner, and there's that spear stuck in, his, stuck in the ground next to Saul. We've, we've seen that spear before. David's seen that spear before. He's done that as the spear has gone by his head before. Saul, remember, weaponry tells a story in 1 Samuel. Saul's spear is a signal of his power. Remember, Israel is loyal to Saul. Yes, they celebrate David's victories, but spies and people tell Saul where David is. Last week in 25, we saw Nabal question David's loyalty to Saul. Saul's still the king, and he has people. He's got the military power. You see that in the spear. He's got the weaponry. He's got that spear. The word spear appears six times in this chapter. Saul's the one with the spear. Verse 8, Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. In today's day and age, hey, let me go get him. Give me a bullet. No, no, I don't need two. Just give me one. Okay? He only needs one shot. And he'll nail Saul. But David said to Abishai, but, contrast, Abishai is there to kill the king. David interrupts that with his plan. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Remember, David said last chapter that Abigail kept him from guilt. If he strikes Saul, he knows that he'll be guilty. He tells Abishai, you strike Saul, you're going to be guilty before God. We're not going to be guilty before God. Don't destroy him. Don't put out your hand against him. He's the Lord's anointed. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Now, why, how in the world is David so confident of that? Chapter 25, David's seething with anger as he's offended by Nabal who will not feed David and his men who defended Nabal's property. David is seething. He's going to destroy him. He's going to go and be guilty in his destroying of Nabal. And then Nabal's wife interrupts him, intercepts him. Abigail keeps David from sin. And then Abigail goes and tells Nabal all that happened. He hears all that happened. His heart stops, and he dies. David knows, okay, I can trust God for what he's going to do in the future. 
I don't need to take it into my own hands. David's pretty confident here. The Lord will, as the Lord lives, that, that phrase, the Lord lives, as the Lord, it's not just the Lord's alive, it's that he's alive and responds to right and wrong. So David's saying, as the Lord is alive and responds to right and wrong, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die. So either the Lord will strike him right away, I mean, let me tell you a story, Abishai, about this man named Nabal. The Lord will take care of it. Either the Lord will strike him, or, he says, his day will come to die, or he'll die in old age and he'll suffer, he'll pay, or he will go down into battle to perish. So this is David's way of saying, I don't know how he's going to die, but the Lord's going to take care of this. David's confident in the, in the promise, the ultimate truth that God's a God of justice. He doesn't know how God's going to carry that out or when, but he does know that Saul will pay. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. Now, 3,000 men. Have you ever tried to walk through a house in the middle of the night with two toddlers in it? It's, it's never been done without one of them waking up. Never in human history. Never happened. So how in the Lord, or how in the world is, is one, at least one guy going to roll over in his sleep at the right time and see two men? How, 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 I mean, that's got to happen, right? How in the world does, do 3,000 men stay asleep as David and his men, or his, his fellow companion tiptoe through and take the spear, or the man tiptoes through and takes the spear, brings it to David. How in the world does that happen? Well, we see, no man saw or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. The Lord put them to sleep, a deep sleep from the Lord. Incidentally, you can pray for a deep sleep to fall upon your toddlers as you creep through the house. Don't know if he'll answer or not, but worked here. Okay? But, but this shows us something, doesn't it? God's behind this. God's behind this. All the crazy things that happen in the Bible, First Samuel itself, let alone the book of Esther and Exodus as the people come through the Red Sea and the, the, the details of Jesus' life, how things happen, and oh my goodness, that's amazing, the timing of all that. God's behind everything. God's behind it all, and so a deep sleep from the Lord has fallen upon them. Verse 13, then David went over to the other side and stood far off on top of the hill with a great space between them, and David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, will you not answer, Abner? So David doesn't call after Saul like he did two chapters ago. He calls after Saul's bodyguard. Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you that calls the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? So you got this high position in Israel. You, Abner, are pretty important. Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. So, so David's kind of taunting Abner, right? Hey, bodyguard, 
Where's the king's spear? You've fallen asleep literally on the job. You haven't done what you're supposed to. He continues, the thing that you, that, see that word you there? He's talking to Abner. That's a singular. The thing that you have done is not good, Abner. As the Lord lives, you, all of a sudden we have a plural. Hey, Abner, the thing that you've done and not keeping, not protecting the king, that's not a good thing. As the Lord lives, you all deserve to die. The other 2,999 of you also deserve to die because you haven't protected the king either. Because you all have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. He uses that phrase. When David normally uses the term the Lord's anointed, he refers to how he will not touch the Lord's anointed. So you could say David keeps Saul alive. And the men who are trying to kill David, who are supposed to keep Saul alive, can't. This is David's way of showing you're wrong. I'm right. If Saul wants to continue living, then look at how I'm approaching this whole thing. You're going to get this guy killed. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the King, the Lord's, or your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. I don't know if David held it up at that point. But it wouldn't surprise me. See where the king's spear is. See the jar of water that was just right there at his head. David is showing Abner and the other 2,999 men that he could have killed King Saul, but he didn't. He left him alive. They were supposed to protect King Saul, but they couldn't. They should die. That would be the penalty, by the way for letting the king die under your watch, death yourself. So David shows a contrast here. But ultimately behind this all, David didn't kill Saul because he trusts in the sovereign purposes of God. He trusts in the justice of God. David is better for Saul than Abner, you could say. David kept Saul alive. Abner almost had him killed. But David is still considered the enemy. It's really David telling the army, you consider me the enemy, but because of me, Saul's alive. You're supposed to be Saul's friend, but you almost fell asleep on the job to where he could have been killed. And it makes me think, this is kind of where every Christian is. We want to do good for the world. We want to show them righteousness and truth and love. We want to show them Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the Savior. And when we try to bring these things to them to keep them alive, to be a means of rescue to them, to introduce them to Jesus, they view us as the enemy. Reminded of that as I see this, David is considered the enemy, yet he's the merciful one. He's the one that didn't touch Saul, who was at that time the enemy of God, you could say. But David obeys, and he trusts in God's justice. 
I think it's important for us to see David's repeated obedience and to just remember that it's one thing to obey once when you are attacked by an unbeliever, enemy of God, or persecuted in some way. It's one thing to be able to be obedient once, but David here shows us the, the steadfastness of obedience in the face of difficulty, persecution, trouble. There's a, certain, there's a certain endurance that David shows that is something that we all could use from the Lord. Jesus showed us that endurance, right? Continually suffering, continually showing mercy to those who persecuted him, even at his death, praying that God would not hold their sin against them. I mean, what a picture of enduring suffering in the face of opposition. David shows us this because he trusts in God's justice. Pastor Alistair Begg tells a kind of a humorous illustration about this. He says, you know, it's like when you go to someone's house and you're on some sort of a diet. You know, you're watching what you eat and, and there's this group of people there and, you know, the host brings out the dessert at the end of the dinner and you say, oh, no, thank you. But, you know, for whatever reason, I, I'm, I'm not having any tonight. And, you know, other people are eating around you and you're thinking in your head, I'd sure like to have some, but I'm going to do this thing. You know, I'm, I'm going to be successful in this diet or whatever it may be. And, and then what happens? 10, 15 minutes go by, conversation goes by, people's plates are, you know, kind of, they've, they've eaten all the dessert, their plates are clean, and, and then, are you sure you don't want a piece of the pie or the cake? And, and we do this sometimes. We reward ourselves for our obeying 15 minutes ago. <laughs> Man, I, that was pretty good. I mean, I think I deserve just a little bit of a, a reward. And it reminds me of what we can do sometimes when we're wronged. We're wronged and we say, Colossians 3, I'm chosen, I'm loved, so I'm supposed to put on compassion, long-suffering, patience. I'm not going to respond in the flesh. I'm going to respond like Jesus would. And then a week later, they do it again. Well, I responded rightly then, but it's time for them to have a peace of my mind. There's something about the second time and enduring the second time that is rather glorious and Christ-like. David endures again the injustice and doesn't kill Saul leaves it in God's hand. That's harder the second time. That's harder in your chapter 26 than it is in your chapter 24. It's harder the second time. But David does it, and he shows us the character of our God. Long suffering. That's God. I read this to you a few weeks ago. I'm going to read it again. You know in the Bible when terms are repeated, it's for emphasis. Turn again for the second time in a few weeks, to 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's not miss this about our Lord. 1 Peter chapter 2, pick up in verse 18. 
This is Jesus talking to suffering Christians. Suffering Christians who are suffering at the hands of the world. They're literally suffering persecution in Asia Minor in 1 Peter chapter 2. So there's a lot of parallels, right? David's suffering at the hands of Saul, first century Christians suffering at the hands of the world, the Roman Empire. So for us, Christians, followers of Christ, mistreated, attacked, criticized, hated, whatever term fits with you where you're at, consider the advice the Holy Spirit gives us through Peter. Chapter 2, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious, and I told you when we studied 1 Peter, you, you can, maybe a better word is attractive. This is an attractive thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. We'll learn in just a, in a little bit who that's attractive to. Okay? This is an attractive thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit it is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But what if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is an attractive thing in the sight of God. God commends that. Look at that person continuing to suffer without sinning. It's an attractive thing to God. Verse 21, for to this you've been called. This is your lot in life. This is what you're called to. This is what God has put in your life. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And here's the key. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see that, that, th those words showing you the, the verb there. Continued entrusting. That was not, he trusted God once when he was suffering. No, he continued trusting God his Father. He trusted in his 1 Samuel chapter 24, and he, and he continued trusting in his 1 Samuel 26. That's the character of Jesus. He continued to entrust himself to God as he suffered wrongly. That's the same thing for us. If you say, that's David. David's a man after God's own heart. No, that was Jesus. I'm not like those people. If you say that, I don't think you understand the doctrine of regeneration. The doctrine of regeneration says that when you become a Christian, God changes your heart to actually be like God, to actually be like Jesus. So no Christian is allowed to say, that was David, that was Jesus, I can't do it. 1 Peter 2 is written to Christians to say, you suffer like Jesus. After all, 1 Peter chapter 1, you've been born again. You're different. All right. It's a long first point. The others are shorter. David's showing us an example of godliness. We see first that he trusts in God's justice. Secondly, let's notice distress from the enemy's opposition. Now, I said there were three examples, 
And I gave you something that David did. He trusted. In the third point, I'm going to show you that David hoped for the right thing. But, but here, he doesn't do anything. I mean, distress is passive. He, he's experienced distress. So, what I'm trying to highlight here is David's distressed by his enemy's opposition. What I'm trying to show is, yes, there were ways that David was faithful, but when you are opposed by the world, when you are attacked as God's child, when any of that happens, it's not comfortable. It's hard, and you know that. Jesus, righteous sufferer, Jesus was distressed. Sweat, drops of blood, David's distressed. So I think it's important to highlight, and 1 Samuel does this for us, that you can stand against the enemy. You can be faithful and show mercy. You can hope in God. You can do all those things, but that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It's hard. There's distress. We see that in verses 17 to 20. Saul recognized David's voice and said, is this your voice, my son David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. I mean, if I were David there, it is my voice, my Lord, you're technically the master, but I might have a hard time rustling up the words, O king. Saul has not acted like a king. Saul has tried to kill David. That's not what a king after God's own heart would do, but David uses his title. David knows he's going to be king, but he knows Saul is the king right now. Saul recognizes David's voice and said, is this your voice, my son David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, why does my Lord, David speaking to Saul, why does my Lord, why do you, my master, pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. So if there's something that I actually did wrong and the Lord is using you to discipline me for my sin, then let me give an offering to the Lord and may he accept that from my hands. Now we already know, because the Spirit's already told us earlier in 1 Samuel, that the Lord removed himself from Saul. So it's not the Lord stirring up Saul in this good way. That's, that's not what's happening. But if it is, if I've sinned, let me give an offering and let the Lord accept it. But, in contrast, if it is men, like the 2,999 around you, if it is men, may they be accursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. What's David saying there? Remember, national borders were so important then. They're important today. But there was a spiritual component to national borders then. The gods of a nation controlled that nation. And I've already showed you in 1 Samuel, David runs to foreigners for help. He's run to the Philistines. That's shocking into the literal hometown of Goliath. He's run there for protection. He's run to the Moabites for protection. When you go into enemy territory, you are not just going into Philistine territory, you're going to where the Philistine gods control. So if you're looking for help from the Philistines, you are looking for help from the Philistines' gods. That's, what, that's what's happening here. 
David's saying, they're chasing me so that they're acting as if I need to go and seek help from the Philistines' gods. And David's distressed about that. The evil ones in this chapter, Saul and his men, are the ones who get to be in Israel where God dwells. But the, right, the actual righteous one, David, is chased off as if he's following after other gods. And that's distressing to David, rightly so. I mean, have you ever done the right thing and had people treat you as if it's anti-God, the wrong thing? That's what's happening here. Verse 20, now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. Again, we, think, we hear presence of the Lord and we know John chapter 4, we worship in spirit and truth. There's no mountain that we go to to worship. Every day is worship. Eating and drinking and sleeping and everything is worship. Whether we're at home or in this building, wherever we may be. But not under the old covenant. Not there. There, certainly you could, David was worshiping in the caves and wilderness, <coughs> but the place where God was said to dwell was in his tabernacle. Later it will be Jerusalem, but David wants to be within the borders of Israel because that's where God's presence is. So when he's chased out of the presence of Israel, he feels a distance from God. I can't worship the Lord rightly. It's like worshiping online rather than being together and singing. It's not the same, and it's not supposed to be the same. D David can't worship rightly. He's chased away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Again, David's saying this whole venture is just so ridiculous. 3,000 men chasing after a flea. You're driving me to other gods in your guys' mind. You're driving me away from the presence of the Lord. David's distressed. David's treated as if he's the idolater when he simply wants to be in the presence of God. I think of a friend of mine. Some of you remember the evangelism conference we did a couple years ago. My friend, Pastor Bobby Blakey from Southern California, came and preached to us. Uh, before Bobby was a pastor at Compass Bible Church in Huntington Beach. He was a youth pastor at Compass Bible Church in Aliso Viejo, just a little further away. And so we were youth pastors together in Southern California, had a friendship. Uh, I would preach for his church. He would preach for mine. It was just sweet time. We still keep in contact. But in that youth group, a, a number of kids from uh, local area public schools and Christian schools were, were saved during that time. And uh, one particular young man was saved from a homosexual lifestyle back, a um, number of years back. And he became so zealous for the Lord that he would lead Bible clubs at his public school and encourage people to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. He went to his homosexual friends and preached the gospel to them and called them to repentance and trust in Christ. Well, word got out, and the newspapers heard, and television stations heard. What in the world is this youth group doing? What in the world is this pastor doing to young people? 
And so Pastor Bobby and his family would get death threats. The local news would write stories about how horrible this hateful church and this hateful youth group was. And that, that's not always easy. You know, we'd like to think that we'd say, bring it on. I'll take it. When you're in those situations, you're still convicted of truth. You're still loyal to the Lord. But that doesn't mean it's easy. Not easy to get death threats. Not easy to have the newspaper that everyone reads question your godliness or treat you as if you are the devil yourself when you are actually trying to show people the love of God. It's not easy for that young boy to take a stand for Christ. It reminds me of this. David's chased off and they're looking at him as if he's the idol worshiper, but he's really the one that wants to be in the presence of the Lord. This is what it's like sometimes to take a stand for Christ. You are treated as if you are actually the Antichrist, if you are actually godless. Our Lord knew this. Our Lord wanted to go and worship at the Passover. And he gets there and they treat him like a criminal. Our Lord understands this. When he was arrested in the garden, what did he ask the people arresting him? Why all the clubs? Why all the swords? Treating me as if I'm a robber? Is that who you've come to get? I've been with you, I've been teaching. The, the record's clear. I haven't violated any law of God. Why are you treating me as if I'm a criminal? Our Lord understands this. Being one who's attacked by the forces of evil is something that we're willing to do as followers of Christ, but it doesn't mean it's not distressful. Distress from the enemy's opposition. Let's look thirdly and see in David hope for God's approval. Hope for God's approval. We'll go through this quickly. Verses 21 to 25. Then Saul said, I have sinned. It's a big statement from Saul. I have sinned. And I hope you know this, you know, know enough about the Scriptures to understand that some, every time someone confesses the idea that they've sinned doesn't mean they're truly giving a confession. You can see that in different uh, writings of the prophets. There's a, there's a kind of confession that means I don't want the consequences, but it's not a true heart confession. I don't know where Saul's heart was here. I don't know if it was a true confession or not. But he says, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Could be an honest, honest confession. Might be. Might not be. Don't know. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. And then David <clears throat> preaches to Saul. <coughs> the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. Now, remember, a lot of Old Testament language about righteousness. Don't think 100% perfection all the time. This is the pattern of righteousness as opposed to Saul's pattern of faithlessness, unrighteousness. So David's saying, the Lord rewards the pattern of righteousness. 
David, the righteous one, in chapter 26, Saul, the unrighteous one. So David's saying, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today. And I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. The, the Lord put you right there in front of me. And I was faithful to the Lord and faithful to you. Behold, as your life was precious this day to my sight, in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. Now, that's interesting. When you're wronged by someone else, what do you want them to get? You want, Lord, help them to see how right I am. Right? David says, you, Saul, were precious in my sight today. And then he says, so may, here's a desire from David, so may my life be precious, and you might think he'd say, in your sight. Saul, I hope you see, you don't need to chase me down. I hope you see my righteousness and really embrace me. David evidently isn't concerned with what Saul thinks of him. So may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. David says, your life is precious to me, Saul, and I hope my life is precious to my Lord. David simply wants to do what's right before God, even if the opposition doesn't understand it. So may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son David, for you will do many things and you will succeed in them. This Maybe the thought is that Saul is actually finally giving in and saying, you're going to be a great king. Could be that. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. This is the last time the two men will come in contact with each other. Last time. In a few chapters, we'll see Saul die in one of the ways David prophesied. He'll die in battle. And David will live. The Lord chooses to have Saul killed along with his son, Jonathan, and David is the one who lives and has a thriving kingdom over God's people. But I don't want you to miss David's hope for God's approval. David hopes in God's approval. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians, a book where Paul's defending his ministry against all those who attack him. They, they tell the people in the church at Corinth about how evil Paul is. And Paul's like, I, I've been shipwrecked for you for the truth of the gospel. I've been mistreated, attacked. I mean, I've done everything for you. And then he says in chapter 5, whether I die or stay here, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. He doesn't say, I make it my aim to convince you I make it my aim to please him. At the end of the day, I just want to be faithful to the Lord when I'm criticized and attacked. So, brothers and sisters, take from this a good example of suffering righteously for the sake of the gospel. In a few moments, we're going to sing a really strange song because that's what we do as Christians. We sing strange songs. We're going to sing a song about our discipleship and the difficulties that come with it. Jesus, I my cross have taken. It's a familiar one to us. At the very end, there's a line that says, 
very end, child of heaven, canst thou repine? The word repine means to turn back. So we're going to be singing, Lord, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm faithful. They, they might attack me, I might suffer, but I'm going forward with you. And then we're reminded of God's faithfulness, and so the very last line says, child of heaven, can you really turn back away from God? So let me pray for us. Please, when we pray, if you can wait to put away your Bibles and everything, we're going before the throne of grace. The restaurants will stay open. We'll be okay. Let's go to the throne and ask the Lord to answer these prayers, okay? Father, you've been so gracious to give us examples in David and ultimately in your son, Jesus Christ. We need the endurance to suffer well without sinning. Whether it's even with other believers who we may struggle with, or if it's like today before the world, we need the endurance to obey you, to represent you. Pray that you'd enable us with the ability to suffer righteously. And we also pray, Lord, that you would come soon. Bring us home. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.